Such a beautiful prayer for us to offer to the Lord, a prayer set to music, and I trust that is the desire of your heart, that knowing Jesus, knowing Him as King, as Lord, all that He's revealed Himself to us would be the, the one great desire of your heart. We are glad to have you here today. I want to add my welcome to Kevin's from the beginning of the service. It's a pleasure to have all of you here. Honored to have the youth group from First Baptist Church, and we've been praying for you that uh, God will just bless the ministry before you this week and use it uh, to make his name great, to bring blessing to our community uh, through his great work and through his great person. Well, I'd like to ask you to join me in praying once again, and as we open the word together, we're fully dependent on the Lord. We can exercise our minds all we want, but the truths before us the Apostle Paul says, are spiritually discerned. That means the Holy Spirit himself has to do some uh, particular work in us, and we also need to open our hearts and minds to him. So let's pray together and ask for his help and yield ourselves to him. Father, as we open your word today, it is with hope and expectation. We are in need of your word. We are in need of your truth. And our hearts need to be strengthened by it. Some need to be comforted by it. Some need to be convicted by it and challenged. But all of us need to be changed by it. And so I'm asking you, Father, on behalf of this assembly, that you would show your kindness to us again. Open our hearts that we may understand all the treasures that you have prepared for us. That we would see Jesus as he is. That his voice would be clear in our hearts and minds as He speaks to us, that You would accomplish those things that You desire. We know that You are a God who is good and perfect, who is righteous and true in all His ways. And Your intention is to bring blessing to us. So often we doubt You. We think that we have better ideas or greater understanding of our particular needs, but we yield all of that to you today, and we ask, Lord God, that you would establish your good and gracious dominion in our hearts so that we might receive that full blessing you have purposed for us from long ago. There is no greater demonstration of your love for us than that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to die the death that we deserved and bear the punishment that we had earned and then exchange as he took our sin on himself, he gave to us the gift of eternal life. There is no greater gift of love that could be given and no greater demonstration of your love for us. So would you bring that confidence and assurance that you as our God are for us, that you have good purposes at work and in mind for us. And so we come to you asking that you would bless us for your namesake. Show mercy to each household. Show mercy to this community, to this nation, to this world. There's so much stress and turmoil in it, and great God, we need you to rescue us, to save us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. For you who are guests with us for the first time, we have been studying our way through the Gospel of Mark over a number of months now, and uh, we have made our way almost to the end of chapter 8. We will finish chapter 8 today, 
and we have watched Jesus teach truth. Some have received it, some have rejected it. We have watched him perform powerful miracles. And all of that is with a view of establishing himself as the one true God and Savior of the world. And he's extending the, the gospel message to Jew and Gentile alike. Communities that are large and, and heavily populated, well-educated as Jerusalem, and he's also been in some of the outlying villages. One of the things we love about Jesus is that he is truly uh, inclusive in the call to follow him. And so in this particular section, we were looking at chapter 8 last week, noticing that Jesus was teaching us a very important truth concerning the corruption of faith and how important it is that we have a faith that is centered in truth concerning him. And Jesus had asked the disciples a very important question. First of all, who do people say that I am? And some of the answers that were offered at that particular point were, you're John the Baptist reincarnated, or you're a new Elijah, or you're just like one of the prophets. And then Jesus made it very personal, asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave a clear and simple and profound answer. He said, you are the Christ. And we were considering the fact that to know Jesus as He is, not as we imagine Him to be, is essential to our faith in Him. Because if you believe in an imaginary Jesus, and those of you who are here, remember I, I used an illustration. I said there are two chairs on the platform, and I actually had a real chair over here, and then I described what was an imaginary chair. But I was trying to illustrate the fact that I can have as strong a faith as I want, but if I put my faith in something that is imaginary, there's actually nothing there to support my faith. And so you may believe in a Jesus of your own imagination. This is the point that Christ is making. But unless you believe in the true Jesus, the one who is, the one who came to earth, who preached, who taught, who performed miracles, who ultimately died and rose again, unless you believe in that Jesus, your faith really isn't resting in something real. So that's the point he has brought the disciples to. And we're going to continue this particular study this morning. So I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read several verses here, and uh, beginning in verse 31, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Speaking of Jesus, Mark writes, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. Looking at a, another portion of really important scripture. And as you can see from the title that I've given to this particular message, there are themes of suffering that have reference to Jesus himself. And there are themes of self-denial that are part of Jesus' call to us. And then you also have this particular title, something we've encountered before, that speaks of Jesus specifically as the Son of Man. And that has to do with his authority and a future glory that's coming and things that he spoke of at the very end. But I want you to go back and look at these first three verses with me from this passage. And notice he uses this particular title, the Son of Man. And, and this is right at, again, right after Peter has made this confession. You're the Christ. Now Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that has reference to him, must suffer many things and be rejected. And so he's laying out before them that the Son of Man uh, has a path that he must journey, if you will a specific path that he defines. And, and first of all, this path, ultimately, as he uses four key words to describe it, is a path of suffering, of rejection, of death, and resurrection. Now, this, might have, this must have seemed like out of the blue for the disciples. And when we get to the little conversation with Peter, where Peter actually pulls him aside and rebukes him, uh, I'll share some things that I hope give perspective on why this, this would be a head-scratcher. Why would Jesus be talking about this kind of stuff at this point? But notice some of the terminology that Jesus uses. First of all, the passion, and I, I use that word with a capital P because in the formal sense of the word passion, when, when Christians speak of the passion, we're speaking of his suffering and his trial and his death and his resurrection. And sometimes we even refer to that week between Palm Sunday and Easter as Passion Week, all right? So passion is a formal term. I just thought it would be easier than saying all four of those terms every time that I wanted to refer to. Suffering, rejection, dying, resurrection. But that's what passion is. But Jesus uses a little word that is very important. And Mark uh, records this for us in verse 31. He must suffer. He must suffer. That is, it's necessary. This is not something that just kind of like unfortunately will happen. It's not really what Jesus had in mind. Nobody really expected Jerusalem to blow up on him uh, as he entered the triumphal entry and then the, the betrayal and trial and the crucifixion. No, it actually was purposed by God. And so that's where we look at the scriptures together and see it's necessary. And Jesus is teaching this because it's essential to his identity as the Christ. Now, there's a second thought that I want to uh, remind you of the Son of Man, that particular title, goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. We've looked at this before, but just to get everyone else caught up to speed here, Daniel, who lived hundreds of years before Christ entered the world, was given this particular vision, and, and I'm just going to include a little part of it here, but in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, or the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Oops, went too far. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one shall, that shall not be destroyed. Now, why do I go back to Daniel at this particular point? Because I want to help you understand the tension that would have begun to emerge in the minds of his disciples when he's talking about suffering and rejection and dying. Because they're hearing all of this teaching and watching this healing unfold and, and their enthusiasm and excitement is growing. And when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one who's going to bring in this very kingdom that Daniel and others prophesied about. So you can imagine their energy and excitement. But now Jesus starts talking about something that they're, frankly, not expecting. Well, what Jesus is actually doing is, in a sense, overturning the common understanding and expectation and establishing something else that's really important for them to know because it has everything to do with who he is. So these things must come to pass, they're necessary. Here's a second thought. This is why it is what I'm gonna describe as surprising to them. When Jesus begins to talk about suffering many things, and, and just to underline some of those key thoughts in that passage for you, as you look down at your Bible or look, look there at the screen, screen, he is using words that I, I think must have just been stunning to Peter and the other disciples. And he's using words that that describe things not only like his suffering, but the rejection by the elders and chief priests and scribes. That is, these are the religious leaders of their day who, after examining all that Jesus has taught and done, are gonna willfully choose to ignore him, to reject him. And I can't help but think that as Jesus says, it's gonna culminate in my death, and then I'll rise again, they're not actually probably hearing the whole rise again thing, they're stuck on suffering and death. I think it's also, if we can pause for a moment and look at that second phrase I've underlined there, be rejected. It is telling to me that it's not the world's worst characters who rejected Jesus. It's not the dictators and despots of his day who, who rejected him and crucified him. It's actually the most religiously committed, the, the most highly trained ones in a sense, you could say the people who knew their Bibles better than anyone else. And what does that say about the hardness of a person's heart that you could be living in this religious realm and fully committed to it yet and, and God sends his only begotten son into the world and he stands right in front of you and he preaches and performs miracles and you look at him and say, I reject you. It tells us a lot about sin tells us a lot about our fallen nature. It tells us a lot about our souls that at the end of the day, we just really like to be in charge of ourselves. So this creates a sticking point for Peter and the other disciples. There's a third little thought, though, that I'd, I want you to see. The coming passion is certain. Mark includes that little phrase, verse 32, he said this plainly. You could also translate that word plainly as confidently, boldly. This is Jesus just saying with absolute certainty, the work before me of suffering, of being rejected, of dying and, and rising again is not only necessary for this work of salvation I've come to do, but it's essential to who I am. 
And Peter had no idea when he said, you are the Christ, that, that his confession needed to include all of that. Now, how do, how do we know that Peter had no idea? Well, look at verse 33 with me, uh, or the end of verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this is, this is quite remarkable, but again, just for a second, go back with Peter and think, think through the Daniel 7 prophecy again. And, and look, at, look at some of the key words in that particular passage again. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And you're watching this unfold before, and you're like, clearly this is the Christ. I mean, he, he can heal people. He can provide food for thousands of people miraculously. He walks on water. He, he commands uh, the, the storms and tempests that are gonna kill us. I mean, Truly, this is the Christ. I mean, we have to be on the verge of the kingdom that, that Daniel prophesied. And so you begin to look at those words that all peoples will serve him, that he's going to establish an everlasting dominion, and, and it shall not be destroyed. And you're saying, and I'm one of the 12 that he handpicked. And I think there are some other prophecies that might have implications for where we serve and the positions that we're in and what we're going to enjoy. I mean, you'd be, you'd be pretty fired up about that. And then you hear Jesus say, very soon, I'm actually going to die. Peter's understanding of Jesus is not yet clear. And in many ways, it's immature. And in many other ways, it's self-centered. He is looking for Jesus to establish the kind of kingdom he's been seeing in the Scriptures. And like the rest of the disciples, he seems to be looking for an immediate victory and success, not just religiously, but probably politically and nationally. They're occupied by the Romans at that point. I mean, who wouldn't want Rome to leave your country? But I also think this is much like the ambition in our hearts that rises within us every day that says, you know what, I, I really want to enjoy my own power and control over my own life, and I want, to, I want to realize recognition and affirmation or approval and acceptance. And, and because we're driven by those forces, we often create Jesus after our own imagination. And we're happy to be near Jesus even to have his promises and his word, but at the end of the day, we kind of want it all to run the direction that we think it should go. And as I was thinking about this, even as I woke up this morning, you know, this little picture emerges, and I'm thinking, you know what, Lord, we do the same thing. How many of you have ever pulled Jesus aside, as it were, as Peter did? And you don't think of it as a rebuke, but the word rebuke here has the idea that Peter disapproves of what Jesus has just said. But you know, sometimes we do that in our day-to-day living with Jesus, don't we? We pull him aside. You know, Lord, I don't want to say anything in front of my wife. But I'm not real happy with the way things are going in the home right now. And I know your word says this, but I've got a better idea. Lord, I don't want to say anything in front of the kids. But they're driving me crazy right now. And I've been praying and asking you to do something in their hearts. And it's just like, it's not happening. Lord. Jesus, 
can we just talk about what's happening at church? Because I thought, sure, it would be going this way. But it seems to be going this way. And I can't say that I'm approving right now. We do this kind of thing, don't we? And even well-intentioned. I mean, I don't think Peter is on some power kick that he thinks he has, has greater authority than Jesus at this moment, but I think it's clear his understanding of how the Messiahship should go has just intersected at a 90-degree angle what Jesus said, and he's like, ah, I'm not sure Jesus really has this figured out, so he's going to offer his opinion. And I was thinking this morning, you know what, Lord? All of us pull you aside from time to time and essentially rebuke you as if we know better than Jesus. As if we have more prophetic insight to the future or to the present circumstances as if we are really in charge of him rather than Jesus being in charge of us. Sometimes it's even rooted in in the word of God. I think part of what Peter is struggling with is he, he knows passages like Daniel 7 and he can't reconcile those with what Jesus is saying at this moment. You know, this would be another example of a time Peter probably should have kept his mouth shut. We're gonna come to the transfiguration uh, in the next few verses. And, and Peter has this great privilege with James and John of seeing the, the transfigured Christ, the unveiled glory of Christ is evident. And he starts you know, offering the suggestion that they should you know, build some tents, tabernacles. And, and God himself speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But so often, we, we feel like we know more than Jesus, don't we? Nobody's going to stand up here and go, well, yeah, I actually do. But think back. Have there not been times where either in your complaint or maybe even just your own self-conversation, you've essentially pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him? So let's not be so hard on Peter as if, can you believe he did that? We do the same stuff all the time. Now, Jesus does something that's rather stunning. And he does it, the, the scriptures tell us, uh, because he is aware of the disciples around him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter in front of them, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Wow. I mean, you, you talk about heights to depths. Peter's at the height of right confession. You're the Christ. And that's where we say Peter just hit a home run. And now, oh, wow, he, I mean, he's, he's about to be thrown out of the game. And the term Satan is actually a description of God's great adversary. That's what the word Satan means, the adversary. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you need to get out of my sight. What you are suggesting right now is actually standing in my way. You have positioned yourself or allied yourself with the great adversary himself. And Peter might mean well in what he says, but his rebuke of Jesus is an adversarial statement. And here's a little side thought for you. Um, back in verse 30, after that confession, Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one about him. I, I 
agree with several other authors who suggest that part of the reason Jesus said, let's not talk about this right now, they'd have been out there talking in incorrect ways about Jesus. And this might be the demonstration. And so for now, Peter actually needs to keep his mouth closed because he doesn't understand who this Jesus really is. Let's go back to the text, though. And now Jesus gives us fuller explanation. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there's the central issue in this well-intentioned rebuke that Peter offers. It's actually the revelation that his mind is not tracking along those eternal and divine purposes that God has prepared from before the foundation of the world. He's actually interested in self. He's actually interested in his own ideas and plans and dreams and ambitions. And Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you're devoted to your own thoughts, not mine. Peter, you're devoted to your own purposes, not mine. This is one of those points in the passage where I believe the Spirit of God would have every one of us to pause and ask, whose ideas about Christ and life am I devoted to? Some of you actually have your own ideas about Jesus. And they actually haven't been created out of the Old and New Testament, which is God's word to us, God's revelation. You've taken a little piece of this and a little piece of that and kind of put it all together and say, well, I have my own Jesus that I believe in. Whose ideas about your life are you devoted to? Are they your ideas? well, this is what I think my life is about and this is the purpose I think I'm, I'm created to pursue and these are the dreams and ambitions that I have come up with. You know, if you're at the center of all that, there's a problem. And I fear that many of us, like Peter, want a Jesus who, who becomes more of a servant to us a a powerful divine source of helping us accomplish our dreams and ideas, A, 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 a Jesus even who can deliver the goods we're hoping for, but not the Jesus who stands before us in this text. And in the same way that Jesus will not allow Peter, well intentioned as he may be, to corrupt the understanding and the mission of the Christ, so Jesus is not going to let you have your own way forever. Look at verse 34. He calls to him the crowd with his disciples and says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus has just moved from teaching more truth about himself as the Son of Man and as the Christ, and now, here's a second big point for you to consider, the Son of Man calls us to follow him in his path. And he's not really making a suggestion here like, hey, some of you might want to consider. He's actually speaking to the crowd. He's included more than just the twelve And so it's clear that he's making a point that all people must consider. Now, following Christ, first of all, means denying self. Did you look at that little 
phrase as we read through it? If anyone would come after me, let him, first of all, deny himself. And I've given you a little bit of a working definition there because it, it's terminology that means very simply to disown and renounce self in order to submit all your works and interests and employments to, to Christ. That, that's a tough pill to swallow. This strikes at the heart of our particular society's love affair with personal autonomy. I mean, it's even written into the founding, uh, by the founding fathers to the core documents of our nation, isn't it? Now, what's interesting is some of these actually are tied to biblical and scriptural truth. And, and we'll come back around to that, at least I hope to, in, in just a few minutes. But that little word, autonomy, what's that all about? That word, autonomy, is, is used in a number of ways. When we speak of, of personal autonomy, we mean that it is your individual capacity for self-determination or self-governance. And so sometimes we get a little more specific and we speak of moral autonomy. That would be your capacity to deliberate and to give yourself a moral law rather than merely heeding the injunctions of others. Or we might speak of personal autonomy as the capacity to decide for yourself and pursue a course of action for your life with, uh, and often regardless of any particular uh, input or even moral content or direction from other people. Or we might speak of political autonomy. And in our setting, that has reference to the, 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 the ability to make your own decisions, <clears throat> respect and, and find that they would be respected, honored, and heeded within a political context. And, and we live in a culture that is all about personal autonomy. It, it even translates then into believing we have the right to determine everything from our personal sexual practices to gender identity, from our politics to career paths, from our religious ideas to our religious practices. And at the end of the day, if we're really honest, in our heart of hearts, we want to maintain our autonomy. I want to be free to choose and then do. But following Jesus actually means renouncing self. Following Jesus means submitting all that you are to Him. See, he didn't enter the world to, to come alongside you and be a kind of, of divine genie to make your life better. He actually entered the world to, first of all, rescue you and me from our sins, but then to call us to, to submit to his lordship and, as he says here, follow me. That's a, that's a tough pill for many of us to swallow. And some of you struggle right at that point. You're saying, that's actually part of the reason I'm not a Christian to this point because I'm not ready to give up my personal autonomy. You know, I recognize that. That's a biggie. Every day, most of us wrestle with, are we going to serve self or are we going to serve Jesus? But there's going to be a point, could be in the near future, distant future, but there's going to be a point where you'll recognize, I really don't have the ability, the capacity, the strength, or the resources to rule my life. And in, in his kindness, Jesus very often lets us have our own way for a time. And then we begin to feel the consequences of that kind of self-government. And sometimes it comes through financial difficulty and collapse. Sometimes it's, it, it's the, the reality that I can't 
control my health or strength or I can't even stop the aging process. There are all kinds of things built into this world that remind us we really are not our own gods. And that's, that's the mercy of God when he brings you face to face with your weakness and in, uh, inability because he is positioning you to lay it down before him and say, oh Jesus, I need you. That's what following is all about. But it does mean denying self. Here's the second thing that, that Jesus says in this passage. Following him means dying to self. Not just a denial of self, but that means the, the old you is actually gonna die. Now he uses some terminology that would have been shocking and stunning. Take up his cross, he says. Now Jesus has taught them of his own impending path toward death, but the cross, or even more specifically carrying the, the cross on which he will be crucified, is a graphic image for them. I mean, this is what the Romans were using to execute, execute the enemies of the state. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, I mean, the image would have been very graphic for them. And he's actually calling us to follow him in a way where the the center of gravity shifts from your life and my life to him. And as one author writes, to shift the center of gravity in our lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. It's not easy, and it really is a horrifying image and most of us are fine as long as that's Jesus under the cross, right? And let's be clear, he's not asking you to die for your sins and accomplish your own atonement. But he's actually calling you into this path of discipleship that says, you need to give up your life. You need to stop trying to live the life of your dreams, of your hopes and your ambitions, and follow me in this path where the old you will die with Jesus at the cross, but a new you will emerge from the tomb. One author writes, what Jesus calls for here is a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination and a call to join the march to the place of execution. Such denial is on a different level altogether, listen to this, from giving up chocolates for Lent it's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. That's strong. Because a lot of us, we'd be willing to give up chocolates for a few days to serve Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is asking you to give up to follow him. He's asking you to give up everything. It seems like the craziest contradiction, a paradox, if you will. Why would I do this? Because a commitment to self will actually be destructive. Look, look at the last verses here in this text. Jesus, there are, actually, there are actually four phrases that begin with the little word for. So these are the reasons to deny yourself and die to self. For, verse 35, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's your first reason. And this is, this is such a paradox, but the harder you fight to save your own life, 
to be your own God and Savior, to determine your own course and path of life, the, the greater your destruction will be. But this is the creator of the universe who's talking. And he's actually speaking truth into your soul so you don't lose what is most precious. Look at the second four. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Countless stories that could be told about people who've had everything this world could offer and yet in the end died with nothing. Relationships broken, their, their health was broken, no amount of money in the bank could, could preserve them from the impending death and, and while they had so much in those few short days of their life, they lost it all in the end because they died without a relationship with the God who created them. And you know, in that hour of death, if you've only lived for self and you've never lived for Jesus with faith in him, you stand to lose everything. The third four is a powerful question. Look at that, verse 37. What can a man give in return for his soul? What is the price tag for that spirit part of you that we all know exists? You can't crack open your chest and see it in there, but we all know it's there. The answer is it's priceless. Some of you are on the verge of forfeiting it forever because you're going to hang on to your autonomy, self-determination. And then the fourth four, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. What's Jesus talking about? Ashamed of me, how? Well, ashamed in the way that the, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees and religious leaders have rejected him. They want nothing to do with Jesus. But those who willingly give themselves up and follow Jesus, he's, they are the ones that he says, not only will I not be ashamed of you, I will own you, I will claim you. And then he reminds us, the Son of Man is coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We've kind of come all the way back to Daniel 7. So some of Peter's ideas about Jesus, they're gonna come true, just not at that particular moment. Because for, before the Son of Man returns in the glory of his Father with his holy angels, he has to go the way of the cross. He's got to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And he's calling all of us to follow in that same path. Because that's the path that, ultimately, that, that leads ultimately to our own glory. So it's not just simply that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm calling everybody to die today. He's calling you to die to self in order that you too may share in his coming glory. And that's the great hope of our hearts, that we, we kind of stumble our way through this life, and even those of us who trust in Jesus Christ are often confused. We can't make sense of it. We're not certain how's this going to work out, and boy, I see some scary things coming tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, but we are setting our hearts and our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him that he has forgiven our sins, that he has given the gift of eternal life, that he will come in the glory of the Father with those holy and powerful angels and we'll be caught up together with him, secured forever. That's the hope of our hearts. But at this moment, following Jesus means death. I've been wrestling with this over the last several days, even thinking, you know what? How is Jesus calling me to die? Die to myself. Die to my dreams, my plans, 
my aspirations and ambitions. And it's not because Jesus wants to reduce my life to, to this pitiful and, and obscure existence. It's actually because he has great purposes for us as we follow him. Purposes that are so much greater than the material stuff and the experiences of this lifetime. Following Jesus means the death of Danny Brooks. And just think about that for a moment. When was the last time you denied yourself something? For some of you, it was sleep. You had a huge project, and it meant you were maybe even pulled an all-nighter because the deadline's looming, and you just, you've owned that. You've got the responsibility. You've got to have the project done, and so you, you gave up sleep. Maybe you gave up a purchase you really wanted, but you just said it's not financially wise right now because that money needs to go here, and as much as I really want that and I think I can make it work, I'm actually going to deny myself a short-term pleasure experience because there's something more important. Some of you say, I, I deny myself dessert last night. That's big because that looked really good and it was appealing, but I thought to myself, you know what, I'll be miserable, I won't sleep well or whatever it is, but you denied yourself. Here's a second question, though. When was the last time you denied yourself something in order to serve another person? It's one thing to give up dessert because you say, I will be miserable if I eat that or that'll put me over the little calorie count. But if you gave up dessert because somebody else is sitting at the table and, and you realize we're one short and you gave up dessert happily and you know, made up some polite excuse or whatever, but in your heart you're saying, man, I would love to have that, but I, I actually do want to serve that person. Well, that... That, that's in a little different category. I know for years as I was growing up, I watched my mother and father deny themselves all kinds of things in order that my three sisters and I might have the things that we needed. There were several Christmases, as I think back, where I'm not sure mom and dad actually exchanged gifts with each other because they wanted their four kids to have Christmas gifts. And they went without in order that we might have something. See, that'd be an example of that second category, giving up something in order to bring a benefit to other. But has there ever been a time when you actually renounced your own plans and ambitions, and as Jesus is saying here in this text, shouldered your cross of service or ministry and fully committed yourself to him? Not even being a close disciple and associate to Jesus like Peter was at that moment, but rather fully submitting yourself to Jesus, saying, I'm here to do whatever you call me to do, whether it be to repent of my sins and give up all that other pleasure that you, categ- that you categorize as sin, or whether it means I've just, I've just been totally in charge of my life, and I've never even thought for one moment, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my life? But that's the kind of commitment that Jesus is calling here calling us to, has there ever been a time that you made such a commitment and even in making that commitment said, this may mean the death of my dreams? But you know, the, the harder you try to hang on to your life, the more you jeopardize it. Jesus means what he says in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The thing you actually fear 
is actually the thing that Jesus promises to preserve you from. Some of you are afraid of losing your life right now because if I follow Jesus, oh, the sacrifice and cost may be too great. No, you, you can't afford not to follow Jesus. This is precisely why Jesus will say in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30 and 31, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. See what Jesus is saying? In the end, to deny yourself and to follow him in that pathway of death doesn't actually cost you everything it is the path to gaining everything but it does mean temporarily you say no to a number of things but you get the eternal treasure i want us to think it through here in the last couple of minutes because as god speaks to us he's calling us to respond and here's the first biggie Whose plans and purposes are you devoted to right now? Whose plans and purposes are you really devoted to right now? In the course of an ordinary day, do you, do you have any thoughts of what does Jesus want for me at this moment? Or what does the word of God say about this particular situation? Or how should I think about this if I'm to think in a Christ-like way. Do you, do you have thoughts like that? Or are you just kind of living your life and then once a week you, you show up at church or maybe you crack open your Bible occasionally and kind of give a tip of the hat to God, but you just move on. Whose plans and purposes are you devoted to? Second question for you. If you're not fully devoted to Jesus, will you renounce self and follow him today? Will you? And closely related to that, will you shift the center of gravity from self to Jesus? Instead of making life all about you, when will you make it about Jesus? And then a fourth question, will you give up your life for Christ's sake and the gospel? Some of you, that might mean a big career change. Others of you, it doesn't mean anything's gonna really change about the day-to-day routine, but it's a difference of, of personal focus. And now you think about getting up in the, in the morning, not just to go to work, but you get up and saying, you know, the work, where I work, that's the context uh, for my gospel ministry right now. And those coworkers I'm standing next to on the assembly line or, you know, out, out on the work site or, you know, the people in the cubicles next to me, I mean, I'm on gospel mission for Jesus. My life is not about the next paycheck. My life is not about the IRA. My life is not about <coughs> all those plans uh, to advance in this career. My life is about Jesus and the gospel. Will you give up your life for Christ's sake? Let's bow our heads and enter a, a few minutes of prayer together. And as we so often do, I want you to be praying to God and responding. Keep your Bible open even. Maybe you just need to look at some of the words there on the page. And I want you to, I, I want you to be sensitive at this moment to what God seems to be speaking into your soul right now. And he may have pulled out one of those phrases 
from this Mark 8 passage. Really challenged you on that, and, and you may have a strong sense of, you know what, I've been living for self. I think God is saying to me right now, it's time to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Would you just respond in faith? I'll give you a couple of minutes just to pray silently to the Lord, think through the scriptures, and obey as he directs. Father, as we think through the words of Mark's gospel, so many of us are like Peter who think we know better than you. And we want to confess the numbers of times we have really disapproved of what you've told us and even rebuked you pulling you aside, as it were, to offer an alternative opinion, to correct you even. But you are Lord, we are not. Please forgive us. Many of us have gone about life as if we are in charge of it all, thinking our own thoughts, pursuing our own plans, and never once even thinking about your call upon our lives to renounce self, to take up the cross and follow you. Would you please give us strength and grace to deny ourselves and follow you fully? For some, that may mean really big changes. For some, it may mean just a, a new and fresh commitment to serve you faithfully, obediently. But Father, we ask that you would bless this assembly and that you would unite us in this great purpose Jesus has called us to and using us together, accomplish your great purposes to bless the neighborhoods represented here, to offer the hope of the gospel to those who are desperate in this hour, to be the visible expression of all that Jesus is and what he has done, as together we are his church. And so I ask that your blessing would rest upon us for Christ's sake. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to give you an opportunity.